Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, Phil Goldfeder away uh, once again this week. But I uh, want to change up gears a little bit, and we're going to spend this week, this week's episode, talking about the upcoming Israeli election on April 9th. That's coming up this Tuesday, and it's a momentous election in many ways with uh, considerable impact, not just for our community, but geopolitically around the world, even here in the United States, I believe. And it is difficult to understand uh, Israeli politics and the polling and how things will shake out. And obviously next week, hopefully we will spend some time unpacking it as we do and give it some analysis. But from a certain perspective, it's so different from the way American politics works, and the results are potentially so different at the same time, that it does bear, it probably is a good idea that we should spend a little bit of time and a little bit of effort trying to understand the dynamics in Israel and how uh, things might shake out as they look today. Of course, everything is entirely unpredictable. Um, maybe even as unpredictable as uh, November of 2016 and how that came along. Now, of course, we're all trained to say, oh, we don't believe polls anymore. Polling doesn't matter. Polling is totally inconsistent. Polling is totally wrong. Donald Trump won. If polling was right, Hillary Clinton would be the president of the United States right now. And uh, obviously that didn't happen. So let's, uh, let's, let's take it a little bit. And, you know, I think one thing is that Bibi Netanyahu has been around pretty much forever at this point. I mean, it's hard to believe, given the rough and tumble nature of Israeli politics, how a politician could endure for so long. And this time he's under, he's not under indictment. He's under the recommendation of indictment. I know a lot of people have gone out there and said, oh, he's under indictment, particularly in attacking AIPAC and the like. But one thing I want to do before we get into that is just take take up where we left off last week, which was talking about Kalman Yeager, city councilman Kalman Yeager, uh, representing Borough Park, Midwood, Bensonhurst, and the environs, uh, was removed from the immigration committee uh, this week by Speaker Corey Johnson, as is his right to do. City council speaker decides committee assignments. He alone, similar to other um, representative bodies where the leader gets to apportion committee assignments and dole them out. That's the prerogative of the leader. And he was dumped from the immigration committee for stating the factual statement that Palestine does not exist. And that was determined by the left in New York to be racist and hostile and delegitimizing to Palestinians. Now, I want to just repeat some of the things that I said last week and go a little bit further, perhaps, just in understanding what's going on here and why we should all be concerned about this. Let's just take it back a couple weeks when we talked about Ilan Omar, and this really grew out of that. And and unfortunately, the discourse has really become uh, so simplistic and with such a lack of nuance, but it's also very disturbing in a way that we 
are are only starting, we as the Jewish community are only starting to understand that we have been taken out, even, and there are plenty of left-leaning liberal Jews, and everybody's entitled, this is not a commentary on whether you should be a liberal or, be the, or you should be a conservative, but very basic facts like stating that, uh, or talking about legitimate historical fact is no longer welcome. It's considered hateful. Now, what Kamen Yeager said is there is no Palestine. Uh, that is a fact. And that's something that is U.S. government policy. It's actually been stated at the U.N. It was stated, in fact, we found a clip of Nikki Haley stating at the U.N. There is no state of Palestine. Now, there might be countries around the world that have recognized a state of Palestine, but it is not a state that actually exists. And there are plenty of minority or there are plenty of stateless people. They're not necessarily stateless. They are people who are uh, don't have a national state around the world. The Kurds come to mind, obviously, have never been able to achieve independence. They have autonomous areas. Um, there are others. Tibet, right? Tibetans consider themselves a separate nationality from China, but they're occupied by China. They don't have a homeland. Uh, I'm sorry, they don't have a state. Um, Baluchistan. I mean, there are other, there are all over the place. There are minority that do not have a state. That's not to say that I deny the Palestinian people the right to have a national entity, but that's something that needs to be negotiated at the negotiating table, and that's always been the case. But the amazing thing is the revisionism of it. And you find in articles now, in the rush, the rush to run ahead and attack common Yeager for a true statement and it's not about the political wisdom of whether he should have said it or not he should have waded into or not he was responding to somebody to a troll who continued to get after him about Ilhan Omar and her and her statements and remember Ilhan Omar's statements as we said Ilhan Omar I know I say Ilhan uh, Ilhan Omar's statements were not about any type of foreign policy she was talking about pro-Israel Americans and what their motivations are, and to say they are entirely motivated by money, and that her colleagues in Congress were had a greater allegiance to a foreign power, meaning Israel, than they did to the United States of America in violation of their constitutional oath. That is, that's not foreign policy. She wasn't making a decision about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and whether there should be a Palestinian state or whether... Israel should be entitled. I mean, this whole idea that that's what she was talking about. And then she, of course, she called Israel evil and has hypnotized the world. And over and over, all these anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, that's not what Common Yeager was saying. Common said the very factual statement. There is no Palestine. There is no state of Palestine. There never has been a state of Palestine. It's not a question of whether there should be a state of Palestine. There just isn't one. And we can go into all the answers and who's to blame for why there is not one. But guess what? There was not, and there was a crazy long New York Times Magazine article this past weekend, uh, just astounding on how they could get the history wrong. But it kind of goes there and it makes the implication that, of course, there was this Palestinian state until the Jews came along and stole it. And that's the narrative, of course. The narrative is for 
that a lot of people think is that, oh, before 1967 or before 1948, the, the Arabs, there was an Arab state sitting there, and there was Arab land sitting there, and the Jews came along and took that land as the colonial interlopers. Now, that is an absolute crazy lie. That is the big lie. That never existed. There never has been, at any point in history, a Palestinian Arab state. Never existed. The area that we know as Palestine or as Israel <clears throat> or has always been in control of a foreign power until the Jewish, from the time of the Romans, until when the Romans conquered the Jewish people, until the time of the state of Israel in 1948. It's just a historical fact. There is no time that you could point to of an independent Palestinian Arab state even existing at that time. And in fact, the name Palestinian doesn't refer to the Arabs. It was called Palestine because of the Philistines. The Philistines are not related historically to the Palestinians. I have the idea, of course, that you'll see with the big lie once again, and you'll see in various places, Yasser Arafat once said that Jesus was a Palestinian. Of course, absurd, because everybody knows that Jesus was Jewish. And this is Jewish history we're talking about, which they have absorbed to a certain... We'll just won't even go there for a second. But it is entirely absurd. And then you kick him off the Immigration Committee because he is hostile. Now, what does the Immigration Committee do? Why is there even an Immigration Committee in the New York City Council? We can debate that a little bit. But it actually is... It is absolutely ridiculous to attack and remove him from a committee for stating a historical fact. Now, you might not like Kamen Yeager's politics, and people are free to agree about that. But some of the pejorative statements, and I found one incredibly unfortunate made by somebody I could have respect for and a friend, Errol Lewis, the anchor of Inside City Hall on New York One, it really made some nasty asides towards Common. Now, they, they don't necessarily have the best relationship, and you know I don't think Common goes on Errol's show very much. Uh, but I do occasionally. And, you know, Errol basically said, if Common wants to be king of his little ghetto, you know, that's fine. Or you know, something along those lines, which I thought was pretty... You're going and saying things that would not be acceptable to say about other people except for Orthodox Jews. And that's where, I, that's what I find pretty unfortunate that he was willing, you know, to say those things. You know, can you imagine him saying to a politician from East New York, you just want to be king or queen of your little ghetto? And somehow we say these things about the Orthodox community, and we say things about the Hasidic community, and it's going on with the measles outbreak and some of the horrid and terrible things. Maybe we'll try and get to there a little bit later, but it's astounding the things that are kind of let go, that are said about our community, that would not be permitted or not be acceptable in any which way elsewhere. And I think that Kamen Yeager has kind of been a whipping boy to a certain degree uh, because of that. And we should be entitled as a community, as I said last week, we should not be on the defensive from people like Linda Sarsour who deny us 
who deny us the right to have a Jewish state. Linda Sarsour and supporters of the BDS movement believe that the state of Israel is illegitimate. They do not believe in a two-state solution. They do not believe in two states living side by side, and eventually that we'd be a Palestinian. They want a Palestinian state from the river to the sea, and this is where, you know, that means the elimination of the state of Israel. That's what the BDS movement believes, and that's what their goal is. It's a professed goal. In fact, the BDS, when they had the BDS debate before the New York City Council, that question was brought up, and... They responded that they don't believe in a two-state solution. So how is it that it is okay for somebody to criticize a statement that is true and call it racist, like Palestine doesn't exist, while denying the right of the Jewish people to have a state called the State of Israel and saying that that is not legitimate? It's not. It's not acceptable. It's wrong. And we need to understand that there is a battle right now in the halls of public ideas that leaves the rights that the Jews need to are essentially pushed aside within this whole leftist, progressive, intersectional world as people of privilege and who need to apologize often about everything and don't are not afforded the same rights and protections as other minorities, despite the fact that we suffer anti-Semitism, despite the fact that we suffer discrimination, despite the fact that we're attacked physically in the streets of New York. Somehow, that does not get the same attention Nobody's out there screaming Jewish lives matter. Nobody's out there saying we want a free Israel. It's about free Palestine. And we need to be aware of it. That's something that we need to be aware of. And at the same time, and this is a good segue, nobody in the Arab world can point to this type of robust and lively democratic process that Israel is going to experience on Tuesday. And the and the fact is, is this fight, despite the fact that you might feel that the charges against Bibi are politically motivated, etc., that they have a robust democracy where the head of the government can be, number one, under investigation, but number two, they can recommend, his own appointees can recommend that he face justice, that he face the trial for some of his actions. That means the rule of law is working. That means we have a robust republic that allows, that functions in a meaningful and wonderful way. And we have elections and that people respect We'll respect the results of those elections. So let's take those elections for a second. Now, we have the two big parties, Benny Gantz, the Blue and White Party. He is a new face out there together with Yair Lapid, who has folded his own party, the Yesha Tid party, into Gantz. And they are looking, hovering around 30 seats. The Likud is hovering around 30 seats. And... Really, what matters in Israel is two things. It's not just who wins the absolute majority, of course, 
but it is actually who wins overall the ability to have a coalition. And as of a Haaretz poll that came out yesterday, and there are tons of polls, and there's a polling average, and you can go. Uh, I may not love the Israel Policy Forum, but they have a great website called Elections 2019. Uh, the elections are in four days, 15 hours, 18 minutes, as of now. And they are have polling averages out there as, as well as uh, all kinds of different graphics with regard to this. But the Haaretz poll is pretty interesting. Haaretz obviously known as a left, more left-wing uh, publication. And they did a number of polling. Okay, What government would you like to see after the election? 27% want a right-wing Haredi government. 25% want a unity government between Likud and Kachovalavan, which is interesting, of course. Okay, whether that could happen. And that would be, they would have the ability to have a, those two big parties would be able to, if they could exist together, could leave all these smaller parties aside. 25% of Israeli voters, one in four, undecided. And then 23% want a left-center government. That means Kachovalavan and Labor and Meretz and the Arab parties. Now, a lot of interesting things here, of course, with regard to Israel and how Israeli democracy works. Okay, remember, proportional voting. So everybody gets a say, and they can get potentially a voice, but they have to get over a threshold, and that threshold is 3.25%, essentially four seats. you got to get four seats in order to get into the government. And that is a threshold that some of the parties might actually not make. There are quite a few of them, some of the smaller parties, that are right on the bubble. And what happens with those is if they don't make the threshold of four seats, those votes disappear and are reapportioned amongst the other parties. So all those people who might have voted for one of these smaller parties and some of these, you know, a Victor Lieberman is in danger of falling off, uh, as they say. Okay, right now he's he's potentially looking at at falling off. Merritt's as of a couple weeks ago was looking the the left wing standard bearer, the far left, you know, peace now Nick party was looking in danger of falling off. Now they have kind of improved. Uh, Kulanu, which is Moshe Kachlon, which uh, was a large player in the last Knesset, I think ten seats, is in danger of potentially falling off. They're right on the bubble, and Shas at certain points over the course of polling has been in danger of falling off. But what we see overall, I mean, and and one of these things that can happen is if a number of these smaller right-wing parties fall off, potentially that upsets the balance of power. But there's also on the Arab side, there are two Arab parties. Last time around, the Arab parties ran as one list. They got 12 seats. They're running as separate parties now, and I'm not sure of all the nuances between the different Arab parties. Um, But the one is... Uh, Hadash Tal, looking at uh, seven or eight seats, and Balad, which is uh, which is also is right on the cusp of potentially falling off, and those votes would uh, would essentially go away. So you'd be looking at a difference if in those in in the Arab parties, potentially of going from that twelve seats uh, potentially to being underwater, and as I said. Shas had been on the, it looks like they probably will make it now, but they had been in danger over the last couple weeks of potentially falling off, which would diminish the Haredi influence uh, of the electorate tremendously. 
if shots were to fall off, uh, UTJ, United Torah Judaism, which is a amalgam of, uh, of the Hasidic Agudas Yisrael, together with Degel HaTorah, uh, which, is the, which is the Litvish party, they are looking at six or seven seats. And together with Shas, if they get five, that's 12 seats for the Haredim, which is kind of around the proportion they have in the country. But there's so many things that can happen now with how, depending on how things come in. And a lot of it is the psychology here of how, how this will shake out, whether the voters will kind of determine that BB can be defeated or BB can't be defeated. They've tried to make this a referendum on BB, which is a good idea with a politician who's been there a very long time. And voters tire of politicians, as we well know. They just get tired. They want something new. They want something fresh. Very hard to win that second term, that third term, that fourth, the fifth term. It's insane. And Gantz has kind of has Benny Gantz has kind of predicated his campaign on that because his policies are not altogether that different. It's not like labor is back there with supporting the peace process, supporting the Oslo Accords. This is not Shimon Peres running. This is a more right wing, more center centrist politician uh, running. From a more practical perspective of saying he's not Netanyahu. But the thing is, if voters don't think he's going to win and don't think he can form a coalition, there's really not that much reason to vote for him, in a sense. Because you might as well, because you don't know exactly what he stands for. So you might as well vote for somebody who you think that represents your values. Maybe you'll go to labor. And the story of the diminishment of the labor party is quite remarkable, given the fact that they ruled Israel for the first 30 years unquestioned. And now they're relegated potentially to a minor, very minor party status and just been totally subsumed. Uh, The Israeli left is in total turmoil to a certain degree. And this was kind of thought to be the election that they could finally rebound a little bit. But it looks like the right is going to come somewhere about 65, 67, maybe even a little bit more seats. And and, uh, some of these smaller parties that we're looking at, like the Union of Right Wing Parties, which is uh, which is uh, basically the old Mafdal National Religious Party, together with Otsma UD, which is the Khanist Party, been subject to a lot of controversy, and uh, some of the uh, more right wing uh, elements of the old, let's say Tachia and the, those and those groups. So that's the Union of Right Wing Parties looking at. <clears throat> seven to eight seats. The big story there, of course, is that Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Shaked, who had headed the National Religious Party through their, what was called by Yehudi, okay, they broke off and started the new right, Hayamina Hadash. And they are looking potentially at being outvoted uh, by a couple seats by the Union of Right-Wing Parties. At one point, it was said they might fall off the coalition. We'll have to see. And then there's also the Zahut party of Moshe Feiglin, who had been a Likud member of Knesset. Bibi had pushed him out. Uh, he was uh, seen as a threat to right wing, etc. And they are looking at, uh, they have been looking at anywhere between seven and five seats, which is uh, quite remarkable for a party that really just doesn't ha- didn't exist at all in any way shape or form and doesn't led by a leading personality in the israeli political 
sphere. But one of the things they've done is actually push the legalization of marijuana, of cannabis, in Israel. And whether or not that that's the that's the key point here for their electoral success or potential electoral success uh, is is hard to know. But we shall see as if that uh, is that brings them there. Uh, the one thing is for sure is that there is so much here. There is so much that could happen in the final days, in the final four days, to make a difference in how this outcome comes. It's uh, it's quite, it's quite remarkable that we can come to the finish line here, and. What started out as a referendum on Bibi Netanyahu is essentially looks like, looks like, and not necessarily because it's going to be an earth-shattering victory for Likud, because it looks like they're going to come in tied. But this looks like he will once again be able to put together a coalition of the on the right-wing side. Now, we will see if things consolidate. That's usually what sometimes what happens with regard to Israeli politics. I mean, could we have 14 parties coming into the Knesset? We might have 10 parties coming into the Knesset. It's very hard to know exactly how this is going to happen. The differences and the nuances between some of the voters who are going to be voting for some of these parties on the right or even parties on the left. Will people come from Kachov Lavan instead vote for labor? Will voters, if merits disappears entirely, that that's potentially four seats that goes along. If some of the some of the little right-wing parties disappear entirely. It's hard to know. And yeah, but the amazing thing is that so many voters are undecided as to what they want at this point. You would have figured that most Israeli voters and Israelis view politics as a sport as much more than anything else. Remember, 70%, more than 70% of Israelis vote, which is incredible. We think here in the United States, if you get 60% or you get close to 60% on a presidential election, that's, that's incredible. That's an incredible turnout. More than 70% of Israelis vote. In some places, in some locales, it's more than 90%. More than 90% of people vote, which is great. Which is incredible. It's a great testament to the state of Israel and its resilient democracy. And I wish that we had that kind of thing here, that ethic that everybody needs to vote, that everybody feels an obligation to vote. Uh, part of it is parliamentary democracy. Everybody feels represented. If you feel represented by your party, and you know it's a lot more, it's a lot more diffuse here in the United States. Our winner-take-all system—that's for a different time. But the amazing thing is that we have—we're uh, looking at something that is going to be. Uh, history making in a sense because we really don't know what the implications are of reelecting Netanyahu uh, who faces legal troubles no way uh, or an unpredictable and unknown uh, Benny Gantz and whether he could even form a coalition it's very be very hard <coughs> for him to do so one of the impediments of course for Gantz is his need to rely on the Arab parties and then Yair Lapid and his relationship with the religious community. 
and or his lack of relationship with the religious community and how that side would be unable unable and unwilling to sit together and that really forecloses his coalition options so the last thing that comes about and we'll know about this better last week is the president of israel ruvid rivlin will have to ask whoever he believes not who wins the most seats not kahova lavan or could based on who comes in first and then he asks them to go ahead and he asks one of them based on who goes first to form the government no it's who he th- believes can form a coalition and who the coalition partners want to go with and that is the key test for how the government will be formed and the negotiations so this really the election is just the first piece of israeli elections and how a new government is formed then the what's known as the coalition dance begins and that will be particularly interesting so we'll know a lot more next week stay tuned for our show here next week here on the Malcolm Siegel Network stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs